if you read a company's modern slavery statement and they say they have never found any forced labor in their operations or supply chain, they're simply not looking hard enough. So the punishment should not be for finding it. The punishment should be for not finding it and then for not fixing it and then preventing it. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Welcome to the BMO Sustainability Leaders Podcast. My name is David Sneed, and I'm a Vice President Analyst in BMO Global Asset Management's Responsible Investment Team. In my role on the team, I spend a lot of time talking to both our internal investment analysts and fund managers, as well as companies about those ESG, environmental, social and governance issues that are material to their long-term business performance. Companies can have exposure to these risks, not just through their direct operation, but also through increasingly complex, interconnected global supply chains. One such risk is the subject of today's episode, modern slavery. With over an estimated 40 million people living in slavery in the world, slavery is not a relic of the past, but something still very much with us today. As long-term investors, we encourage companies, particularly in high-risk sectors, to take steps to identify and manage human rights risks such as modern slavery. Taking action can mitigate any reputational regulatory risks that can adversely affect profits and ultimately our investments. In addition, working to tackle modern slavery directly supports the UN Sustainable Development Goals, especially Target 8.7, which calls for immediate and effective measures to eradicate the various forms of forced labor and modern slavery. I'm very happy to introduce as a guest on our podcast today, Rosie Hurst, who is no stranger to either this issue or to us here at BMO. Rosie founded Impact, a leading consultancy specializing in improving labor practices in supply chains. She has a wide uh, range of experience on the ground, particularly in Asia, traveling regularly to meet Impact clients, as well as supporting teams in the field to implement changes in workplaces and engage workers and employers locally. Impact operates in the UK, India, China, and Bangladesh with a global network of associates, and Rosie has built the organization from its inception. She is also a member of BMO's Responsible Investment Advisory Council, or REAC, that oversees the application of the ethical, sustainable criteria applied to our responsible fund range, as well as advising on our broader responsible investment activities. Rosie, many thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks very much. Rosie, perhaps you can get us started today with just defining for us what is meant by this term, uh, modern slavery, and uh, from your experience on the ground, kind of really what does that look like for people in practice? Yes, well, modern slavery actually um, isn't a clearly defined term. The one that's clearly defined in the international apparatus is forced labour, which is defined by the ILO as all work or service that is exacted from any person under the threat of a penalty and for which the person has not offered themselves voluntarily, which I've always found a very, very unhelpful definition. Um, Luckily, 
The ILO has also come up with 11 indicators of forced labour, which make it a little bit easier to understand what forced labour modern slavery is. So if I just quickly whisk through those, I think you'll see the picture of what we're talking about beginning to emerge. We're talking about people who basically have had their freedoms curtailed in such a way to put them at extraordinary risk of exploitation by their employer. So the first one of these indicators is debt bondage. So if, for example, you have had to contract a debt or indeed sell everything you own in order to get a job, you're stuck because you need to pay back that money in order to be, whether it's to your employer or to third parties. Um, so you are, your freedom is curtailed in that way. Another way of uh, curtailing freedom, of course, is restriction of freedom. So if you're not allowed to leave the plantation or farm or factory, that's another thing. Withholding wages, because obviously, um, if you don't actually get your pay, you can't service your debt anyway. So you're further um, liable to be super exploited if your ID documents are retained. Um, if your vulnerability is abused in a number of other different ways. Uh, if you've been deceived, um, so if they've said to you, come and have this job, it'll be absolutely lovely, and you go, okay, then you get that, and it's not. That element of deception actually starts to move from forced labour into human trafficking, in fact. Um, we also find that people in the kind of conditions I've just outlined tend also to experience abusive living and working conditions. So in my experience, I've never found somebody in debt bondage who has a perfectly lovely job where everyone is charming and there's lovely accommodation to go with. Always hand in hand, you have abusive living and working conditions, often physical and sexual violence, intimidation and threats, excessive overtime, and often people feel very isolated. So when you have one or more of those indicators, some of them are stronger indicators than others, then we're talking about forced labour or modern slavery. And I regret to say it's rather more common than one might like to think. Yeah, no, thank you for putting some uh, definition on that. I think I think that's definitely true. I think the figure of estimated 40 million actually is a little bit outdated now. Um, and some some claim is actually much higher. And I think that's that's one of the things that's that's quite stirring about this topic is to think this is still something that is very prevalent and often under the surface um, amongst um, various companies and regions of the world. I mean, just to help us kind of understand where you particularly work, where would you say it? Where are the regions geographically where it is it is most common? And also, are there particular sectors, particular industries that you find in experience that are most um, most kind of prone um, for this for this um, to to go on? Well, I think um, to twist your question the other way around, I think the largest risk factor for companies is the presence of migrant workers. So that is workers either from abroad or from a very different region of the same country. Because almost always those workers will have made sacrifices to go and get those jobs and will be willing, in inverted commas, willing to suffer worse conditions in order to earn the money they need to earn to send home. So when you think of where do you see that, well, you see it in spades in, in the countries of the Gulf, of course, where the chance of a job overseas for a Nepali or a Bangladeshi person or someone from Myanmar or India or Pakistan or increasingly from countries in sub-Saharan Africa seems like a golden ticket. Um, and where the laws regulating those migrants 
do actually put them almost in automatically into some of the categories I was talking about before. But there are other countries too, aside from the Gulf, where this sort of employment practice is commonplace. So across Malaysia, um, things are particularly bad, uh, Thailand, Singapore, and, um, and even in Japan. But we must remember that you do get isolated instances of modern slavery and forced labour right across Europe, the US, um, and of course the UK. But for us, the hotspots of this particular type of, of, of forced labour are very much the Middle East and um, Southeast Asia. In terms of industry, it's really anywhere where there are migrant workers. So, for example, we're currently involved in construction, uh, marine construction, retail, uh, production of FMCG goods, of course, rubber gloves, palm oil, um, other plantation crops, for example, tea and cotton. Um, so it's it's very, very widespread, I think, underreported. And we're seeing that the regulatory environment is starting to catch up with certain firms. And, and I'm delighted to see also that investors are beginning to see this as very, very central to the S in the ESG. Um, so I'm hoping very much that the light being currently shone will result in some happier endings than we're seeing now. Yeah, thank you, Rosie. And and I think you're certainly right that, that certainly investors um, and in turn companies are kind of getting more and more aware of the need to understand their exposure um, to forced labour, and slavery uh, and, and to act in some way. I guess if it, maybe I just put it over to you to say, if I was an investor or a company, what is the case for me to really care about this area? Um, when, as you say, ESG and even the S has a lot of very broad issues in it. Um, and why would this? Why, why should this be prioritised and something that's spent time on? Absolutely. And I think it's important to kind of um, separate the moral and the business case here. So, I mean, the moral case, clearly companies whose profits are predicated on modern slavery, that's morally repugnant. Um, and as I was saying, this is rather more common than we would like to, to think. Um, I mean, just, just to talk a little bit about that, um, as we have seen um, wages increase in low-cost countries, the demand for this type of labour, which is available below the local market rate, um, obviously has gone through the roof and the supply is unending, uh, which means that the penetration of this type of modern slavery in supply chains and operations globally is, uh, is increasing. Um, so this is morally repugnant, but one of our problems is actually the immediate business case is not very clear because what happens when you free the slaves is the slaves are free to run away. Um, and the conditions are often so bad and so dehumanizing that they have no hesitation in doing that and trying to take their chances elsewhere. Um, so I think it's very important to have this discussion in tandem with a discussion of decent work, because of course there is a very strong business case for human capital development, even at unskilled levels, very strong uh, productivity cases, um, very strong efficiency cases for treating people better. But um, you need, it's a hockey stick curve, you need to free the slaves and then march on pretty quickly to developing decent work uh, in order really to put an end to this problem. And one of the areas that, that we certainly look at, and, and you say there's a growing understanding of the area, is also around kind of reputational risk. And it feels like 
you know, we recently, um, a few months ago, had um, quite a big expose here in the UK regarding kind of one of the main internet clothes retailers. Um, um, I think people were um, somewhat shocked that even in a in a in a UK city, um, there can still be the prevalence of, of slavery-like conditions. Do you think that's also feeding more and more into um, companies wanting to improve in this area in terms of the reputational risks associated? Is that some, is that is, is that a big driver in in what they're looking to to, to improve and avoid modern slavery? Yes, I think the reputational risk is huge, and the embarrassment risk is huge. Um, however, I think more important than the, uh, the than the reputational risk is the regulatory risk. Um, so, uh, particularly in the US, there have been very strong moves afoot to block the importation of goods made by forced labor um, into the United States of America. And this has had a seismic effect. Um, over my 25 years of working in this field, I have never seen companies snap so fast to trying to ensure compliance as when faced by sanctions from the US Department of Homeland Security. Um, So I think that is changing the landscape. Um, What we have seen, for example, um, some of the major importers of rubber gloves were banned from importing to the United States earlier on last year, uh, which is very interesting during a time of pandemic. But the problem then is we found those um, gloves then found their way into European and Australasian and other markets. Um, And I think that is causing quite a few ripples in in government circles. So we heard last week that the EU is exploring the notion of using customs regulations in order to ban the import of goods made by forced labour. And I know Australians and Canadians and others are um, thinking along the same lines. Um, But of course, once you have this regulatory stranglehold, um, it's much more than mere reputation. What then happens is a strangulation of sales. And certainly we find that companies who face that risk head on are very, very fast to make changes. The next thing that needs to happen is those companies which do successfully make changes need need to be rewarded by the market. So um, leadership needs to confer competitive advantage. And I think if we can achieve that, if the repentant sinners who have been able to demonstrate that they have solved this problem in their operations and supply chains, um, if they can gain competitive advantage from that, then I think we'll really be rocking. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned there about kind of um, those who've, who've gained an advantage and, and have sort of looked to solve the problem. So with your kind of experience, I know you do a lot of work with companies as part of your work at Impact. And kind of what what is it that companies can really do in this area? What does best practice look like? And what really can we expect of companies, um, particularly given the scale um, of this issue in, in certain jurisdictions? What can, what can we really hope that they look to do? Yes. So for me, the most important factors are number one, proper diagnosis. So not just sending in a standard auditor who won't pick up the signs of modern slavery and saying it's fine. So real diagnostic work using experts to identify modern slavery is the first step. And to be honest, if you read a company's modern slavery statement and they say they have never found any forced labor in their operations or supply chain, they're simply not looking hard enough. So the punishment should not be for finding it. The punishment should be for not finding it and 
then for not fixing it and then preventing it. Uh, in our view, the second important uh, factor that there needs to be in companies' responses is having found it, fixing it, which means remedy. So this is following the UNGP's, the UN guide, Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Uh, what companies must do at this stage is to repair the harm, which means making sure that the affected individuals are made better. So having their debts repaid and ensuring that their documents are returned and their conditions are no longer abusive. Um, so that is quite a lot of work. But companies that can demonstrate that they've done that and that they have repaid the debts um, should be rewarded, I think, um, because that's a real demonstration of righting the wrong. The third step is, and not to be done before the second step either, the third step is now you've learned about it, now you've understood it, you know where it is, you know how to fix it, how can you prevent it in the future? Um, and that is all about forward-looking in terms of the way staff are recruited in supply chains or in own operations and the way that they are treated. Um, I think the orthodoxy is to have a quick look, say it's not there, and do a bit of supplier training to, um, to demonstrate that you're doing your best. And that simply is, is just not good enough. And more and more companies will find themselves with unresolved issues of modern slavery unless they take a much, much more robust diagnostic approach. Uh, and it's interesting, actually, when you, when you look at what the US government is now requiring, it is requiring incredibly detailed information about products coming into the United States in order to be able, so that companies can, can mitigate the risk of having their goods withheld. And that is two types of documentation. It's documentation of um, chain of custody from raw material through to finished products, but it's also very detailed information about the way workers are treated at each step of the chain. Um, and I think that I mean, their, their detailed guidance was actually only released last week to some shock. And I think this is going to make far more demands on uh, on companies. But in a way, it's quite a good thing because it gives investors far more specifics to ask about um, because mm. there's now a kind of evidentiary level to meet regulations of a very large country, uh, which I think provides a framework which investors can ask more educated um, questions about this topic. Mm -hmm. And do you think there's ever a case... Um so let's say a company has tried to work with a supplier, tried to get greater access, tried to improve conditions, but actually um, either because maybe they don't have the right amount of purchase power or some stubbornness on behalf of the supplier, um, they actually do not do not wish to improve. Do you think it's appropriate that companies just, just sort of disengage with a supplier altogether? And, and kind of when do you think that is that is appropriate for a company to consider doing? Um, I think that a company must first have attempted to engage with other customers of the supplier. In our experience, if you can muster 50% of the value of sales of a company, you can get them to change. And certainly there doesn't seem to be any uh, issue with tortious interference when it comes to convening groups of customers who work with the same supplier. So I think that... Uh, companies need to partner on specific supplier by supplier remedy packages before throwing in the towel. Now, it may well be that companies, particularly, as I said, those currently importing to, into the US, but, but 
also soon Canada and other countries as well, they may no longer be able to buy um, because they may not be able to sell or indeed import that product anymore. But staying in until such time, so staying in supporting financially until such time as the problem is sorted, uh, is emerging best practice in this area. And you talk a lot about kind of collaboration. Do you find that that collaboration is happening between uh, between different purchases um, of, of a certain supplies? Is is that kind of behind this, you know, often as the consumers um, or even as investors, a lot of that is behind the scenes and actually yeah. the work that's done on figuring out supply chains and everything else. So from your experience of, of being on that side, is there a culture of collaboration currently in place um, on looking at these areas? There is more and more um, collaboration, but I'd like to make a distinction between sitting around in a meeting room collaboration at policy level, which is fine and dandy. I'm not against it in any way, and it's in, in fact it kind of it's a necessary thing to do, and collaboration on remedy. So collaboration, facing the issue and sorting it out case by case by case. There needs to be more of that in order to get the traction, um, because of course, unless the market can be reset, unless the supply and demand of labour um, can be reset such that uh, the market does not um, prefer very, very low quality forced labour. Um, until that can be done, it, it, it collaboration is key. And, and on the spirit of collaboration being key, I know a lot of the work that you do and your organisation does um, very much involves talking all the all the different stakeholders involved um, in in the relationship. So both in terms of communities and the employees themselves, as well as the employers and 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 the purchasers. Um, so it'd be helpful just to hear kind of in a in a typical case that you may be looking at, kind of who it is that you would be engaging with, and kind of what it is that that each of those different kind of parties kind of contributes to the conversation. Absolutely. I think um, the most important point at the diagnostic stage is to get that worker's voice uh, central, because uh, one of the most extraordinary things about modern slavery is that it hides in plain sight. So um, perfectly nice people can go to work every single day and uh, from their comfortable air-conditioned offices just not recognise that the conditions of the staff in their operations are akin to modern slavery. Um, so the first point is to is to shine a light on that, which means interviewing a lot of workers and talking to workers about their experience. How did they get that job? How did they come to be there? What money part of changed hands? What documentation changed hands? What's it like now? Etc. 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 So I mean, we classically interview ten percent uh, of the workforce um, using expert worker interviewers who have uh, the language skills, who come from the same places that the various different groups of workers come from. Um, and that helps us build up a picture of the different stories, the, diff the, the big picture of the different stories of all the workers and at what points they are experiencing those indicators of forced labour. Now, alongside that, it's obviously very important to understand the management perspective from, from supervisors, security guards on up, as well as understanding all the policies and how they work. Um, from that, it's possible then to map the performance of a particular 
employer against those indicators of forced labour to identify where the sticking points are. So which particular types of, of groups of people from which origins are experiencing which indicators of forced labour at what time and then at what point in their journey. Um, and then it's all about working together to sort those problems out. Now, some of those problems are about management attitude uh, and are relatively simple to sort out, in fact. Some of them are about money. So, for example, does their business model need them to pay people less than the market rate or less than the, less than the legal rate? In which case, there could be a conversation about price, there could be a conversation about efficiency. There are also issues, of course, with um, things happening in other countries far away. So I could be sitting in uh, Southeast Asia and I could be hiring from, say, Bangladesh. And all kinds of things could be happening for those workers along the way. At the moment, I might think that's not my business. But I think what employers are starting to see is this jolly well is their business because if they don't um, take responsibility and proper oversight on the journey of employees from where they come from, to the factory or farm, then they find themselves liable for repairing that damage. Now, we work in various different ways. Sometimes we'll be working for the employer to help them solve, solve this problem. Sometimes we might be working for people higher up in the supply chain, looking down at multiple suppliers or working across um, different companies working in partnership, or sometimes working for government agencies, each of which have a different stake. But I think the crucial point is put the worker at the centre. If the worker expresses their problems and then says the problems have been solved, then the job is done, and that is the happy ending that we all want. But, of course, normally that worker's voice is buried, buried deep, and you can't get to it. It's actually remarkably easy to get to, if you have the right, if you have the right resources to do that. But I think, you know, all of the complication, and the technicalities go out of the window once you hear what workers have to say, because then what you need to do is very clear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as you say, that's, that's almost your, that's the test case for when there's been resolution is when that's Absolutely. those same workers cases are, are confirming it's no longer the case and how they feel and obviously you have not been traveling much in the last year similar to uh, the rest of us and uh, uh, so how have you found kind of i guess two parts covid19 how have you found that that's generally affected supply chains overall and and, and particularly in this particular area have you found that that has led to for example declining in standards or 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 has that has that helped and also in terms of the work you do so much of it um, for you and your colleagues involves you know talking to so many people um, getting on the ground and those kind of things so how have you found transitioning what you do um, to, to kind of a bit more of the the sort of online world that we're all living in right now yeah, no, very good questions. I think the impact of COVID um, has largely to make the lives of these people worse because what has tended to happen is that workers have got stuck. Um, so either they've already paid their fee to get a new job and there is no job, or they're stuck in the job uh, paying their debts off, but there's no work, so they're not getting paid or they get locked down in a dormitory and they can't go anywhere, or worst case, they die of COVID. Um, and, and certainly we do see that those of our clients who have worked very hard on accommodation standards, which is why accommodation actually has become so crucial in this debate, if you have decent accommodation where people have enough space 
in order to be able to maintain social distancing or a decent standard is what we would see. Uh, we found far less COVID spreading, whereas in those environments where you have big halls with 150 workers all sleeping together and not enough people sharing beds, for example, or indeed having no beds whatsoever, which is the case, uh, in, sadly, in some of the places where we work, they have been the places where, where there has been a lot more uh, infection. And of course, we have seen both in Malaysia and Singapore um, then uh, migrant blaming. So what then happens is migrants are seen as dirty and being the seat of infection. And the anti-migrant feeling uh, has actually been sent in, has actually been intensified by COVID, which has been very, very unfortunate because of course, a lot of the issues we find to do with societal anti, anti-migrant, anti-foreigner discrimination, where treating people badly is fine because they're from overseas and they come from a poor country and uh, they don't know any better. Uh, and we've actually seen that sentiment harden in a really quite unpleasant way when it comes to migrants being seen as a seat of, of contagion, which should tell you that we've actually not really found many difficulties in being able to continue our diagnostic and, and remedial work uh, over this period. Uh, and in fact, in, in some ways... Mm-hmm. Um, having an ongoing conversation, for example, between one of my Bangladeshi teams sitting in Dhaka talking to his confrère in uh, Doha or um, Dubai or Kuala Lumpur or Singapore um, over a long period of time means that you actually get better intelligence. And, and, and sadly, we're actually finding more cases of physical and sexual violence being reported by workers, because somehow it's easier to do this over the over the over the WhatsApp to somebody you've spoken to a couple of times than if you meet someone face to face in a slightly uneasy interview uh, at work. So actually, when it comes to building the dialogue between migrant workers and, and my team, um, we're actually finding out more than we were before. I don't necessarily think that physical and sexual violence has got worse. I, I just think that um, regular check-ins online mean it's easier for people to talk about it. Mm. I appreciate if you could just share with us, and obviously you've been doing this a long time, Rosie, and um, I think over that time, I think you've made some some real progress on remediation and, and some, some successes and victories. So it'd be great if you could share some of those with us, just kind of the things that you've felt that you've been able to achieve um, in your time kind of working in these areas. Yeah, I think the thing that, that at the moment that, that we're proudest of is um, getting money back to workers. So if you think about a Bangladeshi worker, that person has often paid 5,000 US dollars to get a job which has a monthly take home, a monthly minimum wage, so that's um, before overtime, of about $250. So you chaps will be very, very quick to calculate. It takes a very long time to pay off that loan before they start to have any benefit from their migration, during which time, of course, they're being treated quite badly. Um, So the repayment of those debts to us is absolutely central. Um, And I'm delighted to say that over the last couple of years, we've been able to support the repayment of 106 million US dollars to around 70,000 workers. Um, And that's across many of the countries I was speaking about before, so Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. Um, what we've done is, is developed a set of standards for the repayment of recruitment fees because there are no receipts. People have paid multiple actors, some of whom are corrupt actors, along along the way in order to, to, to get the job. 
Um, and previously, I think attempts are founded on lack of evidence. Um, what we're suggesting is that you can find enough information and you can put together credible repayment packages that make a different, real difference to workers. And as I say, we put these together in a set of standards which are now being debated by companies, by investors, by the ILO, by the IOM. And we have high hopes that those might be taken into the kind of international architecture. Now, if that happens, then we can make repayment the norm. If we can make repayment of recruitment fees the norm, we can reset the market. Because obviously, if you've repaid recruitment fees as an employer, and this can be a great deal of money, you are then much more motivated to get it right next time. So to exercise property diligence over your recruitment in the future and to exercise proper controls over the behaviour of your management and of the uh, quality of the accommodation that you provide for your workforce. So we see this repayment as being the key from a humanitarian perspective or a remedy perspective, because basically everyone who gets their money back their migration has become worthwhile. They will get some of, they may have suffered for it, but they will get some of the dream that they traveled for in the first place. And at the same time, the whole uh, recruitment market should be reset. So that is one thing that if I was to ask, if I was to have a wish for what investors would task companies with, it would be that repayment of recruitment fees because I think it's the inflection point that's going to make a big difference in the future. No, great, Rosie. It's it's great to hear that you've been seeing some some fruits of your labour um, on on this. Um, and as you say, that sounds so important for actually um, repairing things and kind of and also teaching um, teaching lessons that could be taken going forward on um, how things can be further improved. I guess I'd ask you, kind of, from where you are, what do you hope to see over the next kind of te- five to ten years, kind of in this field? If we look out, kind of the medium long term, like where do you hope that? Um, everyone involved in all the connected relationships kind of get to in terms of both uh, the companies and and the suppliers uh, for employees and and for regulators. Um, Set the scene for me for what what you hope a future in this area looks like. It's a huge question. I think what one would need would be proper regulation of uh, migration for work corridors, which protect the people moving along those corridors the proper regulation of actors involved in moving people around, so recruitment companies and agencies. You would look to decent wages and the implementation of decent wage legislation, because, of course, where proper wages are paid, the risk of exploitation is far less. Um, And, of course, there are then knock-on effects. As I said, once you're in a kind of decent work, decent wage environment, you can then have the productivity benefits, which everyone wants from improved human capital. Now, we do have to think about a few things here, because there are some risks as well. Because of course, this may mean a reduction in demand for low skilled and low low cost labour. So what will happen to those people? Um, It may cause an increase in interest in automation. Um, At the moment, There's very little automation of the kind of jobs that I'm talking about, simply because the future is not predictable, order patterns are not clear, um, and supply chains, obviously, with a lack of vertical uh, integration means that 
the information you need in order to make those investment decisions are not there. Um, so I think, I suspect that automation will become more important. I mean, for me, this is another aspect of just transition, actually. So as we transition to a new type of economy, um, establishing what is decent work and therefore how much we have to pay for things uh, is going to be very important because at the moment it's a kind of Ponzi scheme. There isn't enough money in the global supply chain to keep the people in the global supply chain in decent work. And that is just true. So there'll have to be significant uh, adjustments to make. Great. Thank you. And yeah, thank you for uh, your time today and kind of sharing kind of your insights um, and your experience um, in this area. Certainly, uh, as investors, it's something that we are talking to a lot of companies about, a lot of other investors, um, and very much kind of learning how what our contribution can be um, in terms of trying to improve settings. And as you say, kind of moving to this kind of new space where decent work um, is is imperative to, to the way the economy runs. So thank you for your time again. Appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.